Chapter 10, verse 38. The narrative switches, and now he is in the home of Martha and Mary, who are sisters and also the sisters of Lazarus. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. And she had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations that she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Look, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the, Lord's answer, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part, and it will not be taken away from her. It's interesting how many people, people come to Jesus and say, you're on my side, right? Tell them that they're wrong. Right? <laughs> it's like, I mean, that's what little kids do with adults. Like, yeah. tell them that they're wrong for doing this to me. And so, like, of course, the first answer question is, but what did you do to them first? Okay. <laughs> um, but that's what she wants to know. She is serving God. And, and this is human nature. We find that there is greater honor, that there is greater reward in serving and doing things. Because it's a lot easier to get up and serve somebody, despite the light, laziness that's being bred into our youth, than it is to actually like connect with people and to be vulnerable with people, to hear, to truly listen. I mean, for me even, it's like way easier to just get up and do around and do things than it is to like sit down and like listen and hear the cries of people's hearts and speak back into them. And so, Martha, this is what she's doing. And this is, we are a work behavioristic culture. And she wants to shame her sister for not helping her, not, for not towing the line, for not saying yes to all these programs that our church has and our school has, and, and being actively involved all the time, right? I mean, this is what it means to be a good American and a good member of any society or any institution you're part of. How many things you say yes to, how many things you're committed to, how many things you're serving, and, and how busy you are. And the more you allow the pinball machine paddles of life to smack you around, the better person you are. And, and that's kind of this mentality that we have. And this is what Martha does, and Mary's not doing that. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, absorbing him. Relationally, his teachings, his words, he is being still. When she comes expecting Mary to be rebuked, Jesus basically says, no, she has chosen the better. Because what Jesus gets that works that are rooted in a sense of obligation is not legitimate works. When you feel that you're obligated, you feel the need to serve because you'll get a reward, ooh, look at me. Or that you will serve because you don't want people to judge you or condemn you or shame you or look at you differently. That's not what God intended, and that's not what true relationships are. This is the whole message of Deuteronomy. We obey and serve God because we love him and want to please him, not because we're afraid of getting punished or consequences, and not because we want a reward. We tend to do both of these, but our personalities tend to swing to one way or the other, depending on who we are. This is what Jesus says to her. This is what true discipleship is. This is what Thomas Constable said. This, then, was a lesson in priorities for Martha and all of Jesus' disciples. 
Jesus' point was not that a contemplative life, meditative, listening life is better than an active life, or that scholarship is preferable to domesticity. Giving attention to Jesus' words is of primary importance. This is a better way to serve him. This passage should not be a this passage should be a warning to disciples who tend to be too active in Christian service and neglect the word of God. So remember, the point is not that being a scholar or reading the Bible all the time and studying the word is better than serving. The point is being connected to the heart of Christ and hearing his words is what is better. Because there are lots of people also read the word of God a lot and they don't really know what God is saying and speaking to their heart. They don't know the heart of God. And they don't know what God is saying to them in their moment. So th- th- this, a lot of people have used this like study is better and not working. And the point is being so busy either in studying or in service and not really truly being in the presence of God and hearing his heart. That's the main point of the message. That's the main point. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he stopped, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father, may your name be honored, may your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation. First portion of this prayer is that Jesus gives a set of second-person singular declarations to God, followed by first-person plural requests. The Jews did not refer to Yahweh as Father because this was too intimate title, yet Jesus was encouraging intimacy with the Father. They were to see themselves as children of God. The reason this prayer is here is because Jesus just got done emphasizing the need to be intimately involved with God, to know him relationally, to call him Father. And so now he's making this point with a prayer by starting with our Father. And this would have been too intimate, too personal for a Jew to feel comfortable, um, either relationally or theologically, in the way they understand things. So he gives second person um, pronouns, and this is a community sense. And so he talks about the community coming together and acknowledging God and asking God to enter their lives. And then he goes into the first-person pronouns, which basically then begin to ask God to enter into you individually. And so this is the way it works. God comes into the community, and then he works into the individual. And this is the point of the prayer that he's encouraging here. He says, Our Father, may your name be honored, or hallowed be thy name, is the old-school way of saying it. And basically the prayer starts with honoring God, giving him glory, acknowledging that he is the highest good that he is the highest authority in your life, that your prayer life should be acknowledging that your place in the universe, your place in relation to God, and God's relation to everything else. And it is only when we truly throw ourselves at the feet of God and truly say, you are the absolute authority, and you are the ultimate center of the universe, and you are the ultimate good, that we are then ready to really connect with God. Any time in your mind that you're thinking there's something better, my success at work, or meaning to be accepted by these people, or amassing money, or, or then it's hard to connect to God. 
This is what St. Augustine said as disordered loves. When you put any other love other than God higher than him. And intellectually, we don't believe that anything is higher than God. But emotionally speaking, we have a hard time doing that. And so part of prayer isn't just saying, God, you're the highest. It's not just singing songs where he's the best. It's truly sitting down and filtering through your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Really taking the time to say, I'm going to sit here and really truly acknowledge you as the greatest good. The highest authority. And music can do that. There is a benefit to music because music can stir the spirit. A lot of theology can be taught through music. This is why the lyrics and music should be so carefully chosen. Because, <laughs> because music is so powerful. And it's so subconscious. And it's so emotional. And it's a lot easier to hear somebody speaking in a lecture and filter or reject or accept what they're saying Music just goes into the emotions and carries ideas way more subtly and powerfully. And so it is good to listen to music where God is being acknowledged, to do something to acknowledge that I truly want to truly feel my belief that God is the greatest good. May you be honored. May your kingdom come. Matthew when he records the Lord's Prayer, he also says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, you, anyone who wants to follow me must pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And so this is where we're basically praying, May your kingdom, not the kingdom I want to build, not my family that I want to build, my legacies, my success at work, my corporate ladder, my, my, my 401k, my hobbies, my retirement, not my dreams, but your kingdom. Salvation is not at its core accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Salvation at its core is acknowledging that I can't build a kingdom through my own efforts and my own works and my own skills, and that only God can build a true kingdom on earth. That's salvation. Acknowledging then that only Christ is the one who actually does that, and it's through his death and resurrection. But salvation at its core is acknowledgement, not, not my skills, not my intelligence, not my works, can bring a utopian kingdom where everything is good. Only submitting to the God's will can bring a utopian kingdom that brings true peace. True peace. Not a government peace, not a Hollywood peace, not a New Age peace, but a peace between God and each other and among creation. And so this is praying for that, that I, I acknowledge that, that though there might be things about my will that are good and given to me by God, but I need to filter all those things through God. And ultimately, I need to say, not my dream, not my five-year plan, not my wishes, but yours. And we talked about this with denying yourself. And this is the practice. If we don't do this on a regular basis, I mean, we are tangible people. And we need to process things out loud. I would encourage you to pray out loud at times on your own and not just in your head. There's something about speaking and hearing it that makes it way more powerful and carves it into you more than just 
having thoughts spinning around in your head. If you're like me, there are millions of thoughts going through my head all the time, and I tend to get caught up in the thoughts and just overanalyze each thought rather than really truly connecting to God. And, and speaking out loud helps make things way more conscious and concrete and less whirlwind. Acknowledging on a daily basis, not my dreams, not my will, not my power, not my kingdom, not my goals, but yours. And of course, Christ is the ultimate example of this in the garden. Not my will be done. I don't want to die. Everything in me wants to disobey you, Father, and run away. When you're like, God, I don't want to do this. We talked about this in Psalms when we went through the book of Psalms. And that the whole idea of Psalms is to share all your feelings and all emotions, whether they're good, bad, or ugly, with God, with no shame of being rejected or condemned by Him, because He already knows them, He wants to hear them, and He's the only one that can handle them, without becoming bitter, negative, or rejecting you like humans tend to do when you actually throw up on them emotionally. Sharing that with them, and expressing all, and then allowing Him, and, and being okay. I don't need to feel guilty or shame that I just confess to God I want to disobey him right now. That I want to do this horrible thing to my neighbor or whatever. Or I want to run away as a parent and never come back. I don't need to feel that shame. But your will. I'm sharing this with you because I want your will to be done in my life. And that's what he's asking. This is what the community should be doing with total transparency and vulnerability and absolute surrender before God. And then, that's when you're ready to depend upon him. That's when you're ready to depend on him. And when you constantly are having this other love that's higher than God in your life emotionally, when you're not willing to really truly say, I know this will take a long time for me to surrender my will and my kingdom to you, but I want to. I want to surrender my will and my kingdom to you. And some things, some dreams are harder to surrender than others. Some wills and desires are harder than others. But I want to do that. And, and then when you are willing to do that, not my will, but yours is done, then you're ready to say, then I'm going to trust you to provide for me. Give me my daily bread or give us our daily bread. This goes back to the wilderness where God gave them just enough bread to sustain them for another day. And in the wilderness generation, they were not happy with that. That was not enough for them. They wanted more. And they had a different idea of how they could build a kingdom of bread, a kingdom of food, a kingdom of water and meat. And they were unwilling to really truly believe and trust God. And because of that, all their bodies hit the floor in the wilderness. They all die. And so this is where I say, I know that I may not have as much as the Joneses over here. I may not have as much as I want. I may not have as much as I think I need but I'm trusting that you're providing for me. I'm trusting that you've given me just what I need. And I trust you that you'll be there tomorrow and the next day. But that can only come when you consciously submit yourself to God and his kingdom and truly honor him. And forgive us our sins, for as we forgive everyone who sins against us. God is telling you to forgive the people where you're asking for your sins to be forgiven. But notice that it's also in the context of as we forgive others. Now, now this is a tension here. God is not, on one end, God is not saying like, if you don't forgive other people, he'll never forgive you of anything. Okay? He's not saying that. 
Like, there's lots of people you haven't forgiven, lots of things you haven't forgiven. Okay, he's not saying that. But in another sense, he is kind of saying that. Because what he is saying is that if you have been forgiven, you should have a change in your heart. If you truly surrendered to God and honored him and prayed for his kingdom and his will to enter your life, and you're doing this on a daily basis, consciously and intentionally, and you've truly accepted the forgiveness of God, then something should be changing in you, and you should have the desire to forgive other people. And if there is no desire to forgive them, if there's no desire to to wish the best in their life, then you have to seriously question whether you are truly forgiven, whether you've truly surrendered, whether whether there's truly a fruit, whether you've truly been transformed and indwelled by the Spirit. Remember, the Bible makes clear over and over and over again, you will know, I will know you, you will know you by the fruit that you bear. And when Israel wasn't bearing fruit on the fig tree, he cursed the tree and it dies. And I'm not saying that you're not saved, but if there's no fruit in this area, what I am saying is you should take a hard look inside and get with God and ask the question, why isn't there? Why isn't there? This is the parable of the great debt forgiven, where the guy was forgiven of a great debt, and then he goes off and refuses to forgive the other debt that's smaller, and then the, the king throws the big debt back onto him and throws him into prison until he can pay it off. Listen, you can't pay debt self in prison. You can't do it. So the idea of the parable is you're stuck there for all eternity. And then it's a picture of hell. It's a picture of being cast out of Christ. And so here's a man who thought he was connected, was incredibly thankful for the debt that had been forgiven his life, but he was unwilling to do the same thing for other people, and therefore it showed that he really wasn't connected to the king. He wasn't really a part of the king. Now I get that some people have been betrayed and hurt and wounded in horribly deep ways that I can't even imagine. There are some evil things that people have done to others. And I'm not saying forgive it and get over it because that's what makes you a real Christian. Because that's incredibly insensitive. And it doesn't take account for the deep wounds that are in your life that have to heal and the trauma that you face and the things you have to get over. But what I am saying is there should be at least a desire to say, God, I'm so angry and I'm so hurt and I want nothing to do more than rip their throat out like David in the Psalms. But I don't want to live that kind of life. I know that's not the best for me. I know that's not best for a community. I know that's not what brings you honor. I know that's not what you want for me. I know that's going to affect my relationship with you and other people. So please, God, give me the ability to change. And it may take a year, two years for you to finally get to that point where you can truly let go. When they walk in the room, you don't ball your fist up and want the pound of flesh from them. Or you just don't immediately collapse in fear and trauma or tears and angst, whatever. It may take a while. That's not what Jesus is saying. Like, well, if you can't forgive them today, then you're not going to be forgiven by me. What he's saying is there should be at least a surrender a desire to say, I know I'm holding on to this. I know I can't let go of it, but I don't know how to let go of it. But please work in my life. I give you permission to heal me, however long that takes, and whatever pain that I might have to go through for that to happen. That's the point that he's making. It's not, listen, 
nothing that God is asking you to do is instant, microwave. Uh, there's a really great teacher by the name of Cy Rogers. He talks about the idea that everything that God does begins with a miraculous event that leads to a long process. God miraculously speaks the universe into existence and then puts Adam and Eve in it and says, now join me in the long process of expanding the garden. God miraculously impregnates you with a baby in your body and then begins the long process of a nine-month growth. And then the miraculous birth of that baby comes into life, which begins a long, difficult process of raising them into the image of God. Uh, the moment you become saved is a miraculous event for many people, which begins a long process of sanctification and transformation. When God says this, yes, it's an immediate act words of prayer, but it's not an immediate act of execution. Your salvation is a miraculous event that leads to the long process of forgiving, of surrendering your will of honoring God and learning that and becoming better better by each day. I think I've mentioned this before, but the author of Amazing Grace, the song, said, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. And I tell my students all the time, because it's very easy to get caught up in a Christian community culture where like you haven't gotten over that yet, and they feel that guilt and shame. And I tell them that that's not the measure of sanctification. The measure of sanctification is, did I repent a little bit more quickly in that sin this year than I did last year? Did I go a little bit longer before I fell into temptation this year than I did last year? Did I genuinely want to give this up a little bit faster this year than I did last year? And yeah, you had a roller coaster this year. There's some times you can point to where you did a little bit slower than you did last year. But overall, did you see the graph go up just a little bit higher? And that's what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for, that I'm just a little bit better than what I used to be. And that's the mark of sanctification. And that's, that's, that's how you need to see this prayer. I think we get too overwhelmed with the perfection that is called by for us. But that's not what God is saying. It's a process. And do not lead us into temptation. And this is acknowledging that my only shield against temptation in the world, the flesh, and the devil is God himself, the full armor of God. So one can unpack this last statement, do not let us lead us into temptation, by going to Ephesians 6 and then diving into a long study in the armor of God. That I realize that my only defense against this world, the flesh and the devil, is God himself as my shield. And he can only be my shield if I'm invoking him and picking him up, for lack of a better analogy, and carrying him. This is what your prayer life should be like. Acknowledging God, acknowledging that only his kingdom and his will is really going to fulfill you, surrendering him to the life change that you know you need in your life, which has more to do with forgiveness than it does becoming a better person. Most of our behavior issues are the lack of forgiveness or lack of healing in our life. And then acknowledging that he is our only source of provision and then trusting him to defend us and protect us from temptation. If you can pray this out loud in some kind of a way, and you don't have to, I'm not saying you have to pray out loud all the time, but if you can pray this intentionally, consciously, and 
premeditatedly every day, there's no way that this would not change you over time. There's no way that this wouldn't recenter you over time. Think of this as your recalibration. Everything needs recalibrated on a regular basis. And this is what it is. The other thing you must understand is that these aren't magical words for your prayer life. You just like come together as a family and you have your like pre-wrote prayer that you say and you're like, amen, and then you're done. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. But if that's all your prayer life is, is somebody else's words, that's not good either. This is a template. And for some personalities, honoring God looks different than other personalities. The need to surrender to the will of God might look different from somebody else than another person. What it means, what you have to do to get through the provision, and so this is what I would call you to do. Take this template that Christ has given you and pray over it, and then ask God and the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what does it look like for you to recalibrate yourself? What is it that you, do you do? You new music to really understand that God is the one that you honor in your life, or is it art for you? Or is it nature? Or is it a walk? I don't know. What, is it, what do you need to do to, to surrender the will of God and try to really truly let go of your own kingdoms, your own desires? What does it mean for you to really, what do you have to pray to trust God for your provisions? What are your provisions? Help me through this economy. Help me right now. What my wife and I are desperately praying all the time is just give us wisdom with our kids. Okay? We, I, the... the Right now, it's like, I need wisdom to figure out the world that we're living in right now and the chaos that just seems to be slamming against the window of our life all the time from the world around us. And then the whole internal chaos of our kids and their own unique chaos. They all bring their own unique little tornado of emotions. And I need wisdom because I've seen what happens when I try to do it. This is what you need to ask. What does this template look like for me? in my life? What does this template look like for my family? What does this template look like for my community? And that's how you take this prayer and make it a part of your life. And then if you do that, well then God is the much better teacher on this than I am of what it means for you to pray this template. And so this is what they asked, how shall we pray? And he said, this is how. Relationally, intimately, surrendering absolute dependency upon God to change you into what he intended you to be. Sit at his feet like Mary did. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine has stopped here while on the journey and I have nothing set before him. Then he will reply from inside, do not bother me. The door is already shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though the man inside will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, his friend, yet because of his first man's sheer persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus says, bang on that door until you make a total racket in the neighborhood. You get up in the middle of the night, that's the worst time to get up because nothing good happens in the middle of the night. Okay? And so this guy has every reason to keep his door locked. He's annoyed that you woke him up. He just wants to sleep. Giving bread means like pulling things out that he's tucked away for sleeping. Remember, your living room and your cooking space and your living space and your sleeping space are all in the same room. 
You just transform it throughout the day based on what you need. It's like living in a tiny home. Okay, what well, is a tiny home? So, hey, they had tiny homes before it was cool. So, <laughs> and posh. So, and then what he's saying is when all the, remember, everybody lives really close together. In the middle of the night, everybody's going to hear this. It's like living in a camping community and you're trying to sleep, but there's the noisy college kids next to you. They hear it. And then all of a sudden now, he is under the obligation of the community to take care of him because this is hospitality. They, they value hospitality higher than everything. And when everybody hears about this, they're going to be like, you did not help them. And there's going to be a shaming element there. And so this is the persistence. Parables and analogies only stand on three legs. Okay, not four legs. A stable stool is four, not three. What God is not saying is that he's unwilling to give it to you because he's annoyed that you came to him and you better just make such a rocket and noise and wake everybody up in the neighborhood and just annoy the crap out of him until he gives you something. Because he's a good God, remember, who wants to give you life to the fullest and make your joy complete. What he is saying is that the point is be persistent. Even if it's very inconvenient. Be persistent. And this goes back to what I said, that transformation is a process. Transformation is a process. There are different ideas of where we can go through the Bible and we can see why prayer. And there are actually places where the prayer didn't get answered because they didn't pray enough. Because the point is not like, well, it's not until you pray like 742 times that I'm actually going to answer your prayer request. Oh, you're one short. Okay, that's not the point. The point is that a lot of the prayer has to do with us being transformed and our own persistence and our own desire to keep doing this and are, and are showing that we want to know God's will. We are looking to him in dependency. That changes us too. That process of praying persistently and over and over again changes us. And a lot of times, what God ends up communicating is at the end, what was more important in the end was how we had been transformed rather than what he was going to give us. But that's part of the gift too, is a transformation. And so he says to pray persistently in this prayer. So I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be open. He makes it clear that if you ask, you will receive. You're like, well, I asked to win the lottery, but I didn't play it. But God didn't give it to me. I asked for this giant house. I asked for this nice car. I asked for this vacation. I didn't get it. No, because Jesus also made it very clear in John that you pray things in God's name. And name is character. And then right before this, Jesus made it clear that you pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the thing. When you are praying in the will of Christ, and when you're connected to him, then slowly over time, he will transform your heart to be in sync with his heart. And then what you want is what he wants. Because what he wants is what, what you end up becoming wanting. And that's the goal. So that whatever you pray, he will give it to you. Because you're now in sync with his will. And that's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to sync yourself with his will. Four, what father of you, among you, 
If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead of a fish. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, if then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's the question. Do we really believe that? Do you really believe that God wants to give you good gifts? And one of the things he says to help you believe that is, if you as evil, selfish people who can think of all these reasons why you shouldn't give this to your kids are still willing to give it to your kids, you want to see them be happy and pleased, and you're willing to give them good gifts, then how much more would a good, loving Father who created you, sustains you, and dies for you to redeem you want to give you good gifts? If humans who are evil and selfish know how to selflessly give good gifts to their children, and certainly the Father of all creation knows how to do that. And the question is, do you really believe that? Do I really believe that? I've said this before, but as I'm watching things change in our culture, and I'm beginning to see the reality that the comfort of living in America could be going away very quickly, the question is, do I really believe that? That God wants the best for me, that he'll give me good gifts, even though are not going to look like what I think the good gifts for my family are? That's the question. And that's a difficult one. This is what it means to truly sit at the feet of Christ and to know him.